Welcome to another episode of the Teacher Podcast. For this episode, I spoke to Eric Clark. Eric is the Heather Professor of Music here at the University of Oxford, but he's also the co-investigator on the project. As you will hear, our conversation touched on various topics related to HIP, but I started by asking him about the role of recordings in HIP research. A question that was raised by the first podcast is, what is HIP really trying to do? You could argue that historically informed performance is either trying to do something that is to do with the reconstruction of a kind of performance style that was associated with an earlier period of music, or that it is trying to recreate that style of performance for a contemporary culture, or that it is trying to create um, an entirely new way of playing this repertoire, but in some way informed or inspired or invigorated by historical principles. So the first of those, let's call it the reconstructionist kind of attitude, is perhaps most obviously associated with the now rather reviled term authenticity. So arguably those people who wanted to call this um, authentic performance were making the claim that they were reviving ways of playing that would entirely reconstruct um, the sounds and the manners of an earlier period of performance. And as the first podcast um, explored, that is an attitude that most people now take with a considerable pinch of salt, if not have outright um, kind of left behind or rejected. The second then, that this is a kind of recreationist um, attitude, is slightly different in that it's say it is recognizing that um, HIP performers or HIP ensembles are trying to recreate a mode of performance, admittedly, you know, within an entirely different contemporary circumstance. So, you know, one might be trying to recreate the music of Brahms, but one recognizes that this is going on in 2019 or whatever it is, and that therefore, um, you know, the audiences are going to encounter that music in a different way simply because they have a different history of listening, of course, than than a person in Brahms's time. But nonetheless, the aim is to recreate as far as possible um, the kind of the sounds and the attitudes and the stylistic principles that were, um, uh, you know, characteristic of that music in its own time. And then the third, um, the creationist approach, I suppose, or the creative approach might be to say, in, in the same way as in other fields of human understanding, let's look back at history and see what history can tell us that is interesting about how people did these things in, these pa- in the past and what the context in which they did that was and how that context might have influenced it. Let us pay attention to that, learn something from it, but now implement it perhaps in an entirely different way or with different um, additional considerations in our current circumstances. And perhaps an interesting way of, of um, which this has been done is by the consideration of old recordings. Yeah, I think old recordings represent, of course, a very important kind of evidence of, if you like, the, the slightly more recent past. They, they clearly can't tell us much about um, pre-19th century music, but given that the, the primary concern, or the sole concern of this project is music from the 19th century, that um, the earliest recordings provide us clearly with important acoustical evidence about what those performances sounded like. 
and one might and, and, and you know this is important evidence that uh, to set alongside um, the written evidence of people who witnessed the witnessed performances or of treatises that might have been written about how uh, teachers or performers might have um, thought about how this music might should be uh, performed. What one then does about those recordings, I think, is is an interesting question. One way would be to, and and this perhaps is the approach adopted by a person like Robert Philip, for instance, in his books about, uh, in his two books about uh, old recordings, is to listen very attentively to those recordings to try and determine what are the characteristic ways in which people seem to be um, you know, interpreting and playing that music, and on that basis, you know, to reconstruct a whole a whole number of things about attitudes to musical structure or aesthetic outlooks or um, the organisation of um, orchestras and ensembles or whatever. But another way might be to take those recordings as a kind of model and to ask the question: Well, if we take those as a model and start out by trying to imitate what those recordings sound like, then might that provide us with a way of kind of somehow getting inside what it is like to play music in that way. This is not dissimilar, one might argue, from the approach of quite a lot of um, skilled crafts, like uh, an example that's often given is the, the, the craft of calligraphy in uh, you know Chinese and Japanese calligraphy, where um, pupils of a calligraphic master will spend, you know, many years just simply learning to imitate the strokes of a calligrapher. Not, of course, because all they want to do is to reproduce what that calligrapher has already produced. But by virtue of that imitative process, they kind of incorporate into their body, into their physicality, a sense of how to make those strokes. And from those strokes, then to move on towards making uh, strokes of their own, strokes that, that, have their, that bear their own imprint, if you like. And so in a similar way, you could imagine that, uh, and actually perhaps the, the parallelism with calligraphy is perhaps particularly pertinent, say for a string player, that if a person learns to imitate the sound of, let's say, Joseph Joachim, who is a rather celebrated example of this kind of process going on, if a string player can learn to imitate the sound of Joseph Joachim, then perhaps she or he has been has necessarily been using similar kinds of bow strokes to achieve those sounds. And by an understanding of what the physicality of making those bow strokes feels like and what the consequences of that kind of physicality are in terms of sound and style and all of those kinds of things, then perhaps again she or he can go on and use those same, same principles to play different music that uh, Joachim either didn't record or perhaps even never played. I mean, it could be music that even was written after Joachim was long dead, but, uh, but certainly it would be a way of acquiring Joachim-like um, bodily um, habits that could then be appropriated and used for other purposes. Can you just walk me through the process that people who engage with this evidence actually use? Yeah, okay, so okay, let's imagine then that we have a relatively small body of recordings by Joseph Joachim, including part of a Brahms sonata, and that um, a violinist decides that she or he wants to get to know how to play not only this music, but music of, of a similar period 
um, using what they hear in Joachim's perform uh, recorded performances as their evidence. So what they might start to do is first of all start just simply to be able to imitate the playing of this particular passage of music as closely and faithfully as they can with you know every nuance of vibrato or lack of vibrato and of portamenti or not portamenti up to particular notes and of string sound and of bow stroke and of all of those things and articulation and out of that to develop some sort of sense I suppose and it may be a, a, a sense of this which is more implicit than explicit but some sort of sense of why Joachim is doing those things at those places in the piece. I suppose, you know, one a, a particularly analytical performer might even say, okay, you know, Joachim only uses a portamento when he is sliding up to a note in this particular part of the phrase or, or, or a note that has this particular harmonic or melodic function or whatever. So that in a way they're trying to generate a kind of, they're, they're trying to acquire a kind of generative grammar, you might even say, for that performance simply through this kind of embodied relationship with it. And, I mean, there is quite good evidence from elsewhere, for instance, in psychology, that people can know how to do things simply through doing them in a way that they can't necessarily articulate uh, verbally. Riding a bicycle is the often is the oft-given um, example that most people who ride a bicycle have no idea of the kind of the physics that they're using in order to stay upright and in order to turn a corner and all those kinds of things, but they exhibit the capacity to do that extremely skillfully. And by learning to ride, you know, a bicycle of size X, we learn certain skills that we might be able to transfer to a bicycle of size Y. Or by learning to ride an ordinary bicycle, we can transfer some of those skills to learning to ride a tandem, let's say, which offers some different opportunities. So we go back to this this um, imagined violinist now, who has learnt to play the Joachim, and then she or he thinks, well, okay, let me take those principles and um, you know take another um, sonata by Brahms and apply those same methods to it. Or perhaps then you know moving forward, think, well, okay, Brahms and Berg, they're not such a million miles away. What about the Berg Violin Concerto? What happens if I take some of these principles of kind of later 19th century violin playing and play and apply them now to a piece in the 20th century but which has some some kind of stylistic affinity with that earlier music and there I think one sees the transition from um, a kind of behavior which does seem to be merely reproductive just imitating what the model was and, uh, and which a skeptic might say well what, what's the point of trying to imitate Joachim we, we, we have Joachim already I don't think I can't see what's achieved by doing that. I think there we see that, that if we regard that only as the starting point and not the finishing point, that there is indeed something that can go on and be quite interesting and potentially both creative and perhaps insightful into understanding how, um, how, how later repertoire and perhaps later players might be understood. But this brings us back to the, the thing raised in the very first podcast. What is HIP? Is it a reconstructive movement, or is it a completely creative movement, or is it somewhere in between? Mm. Yes, I think there are some interesting questions about what HIP is trying to achieve. I mean, I, I think it's undoubtedly the case that there are some people within this kind of broad umbrella who are indeed interested in 
trying to reconstruct a historical situation and understand it in its own terms and from primarily historical perspectives and you know there's there's nothing that one should there's nothing wrong with that <laughs> it's it um i think in the in some people's minds it is regarded as having a slightly reifying and sort of museum culture approach it seems to be trying to uh to fix something in the past and just simply like a ta time capsule sort of move it forward into the present without actually um, changing anything but I don't think it's really any different in a sense from the ways in which people want to I don't know reconstruct the um, architectural models or building techniques of gothic cathedrals or something like that mm -hmm. one may want to understand how it is that Notre Dame was um, built in its own terms and that may mean having to make a, a model of it or something like that in order to understand those techniques. Um, but it of course does also offer the opportunity um, to use those, that same understanding, that same knowledge to do something that is more forward-looking and more obviously forward-looking and creative to take those methods and to say well, now that we understand perhaps something about how to make that music kind of from the inside by having, um, you know, felt it in our bodies and produced it ourselves, perhaps we now want to also find out something about the cultural context in which it took place and how that, those cultural factors may have um, been intertwined with the ways in which people use their bodies. I mean, we know from the history of uh, how people dressed and and of etiquette and stuff like that that we that that throughout human history people use their bodies and dress their bodies and present their bodies in different ways and given that bodies are intimately bound up with music we might want to know something rather than just knowing something about how a violinist happens to move their arms and their fingers and the rest of their bodies in playing the instrument how does that relate to more a more broad cultural context? So it brings in a, a broader kind of frame of culture into this whole question. And then one might say, okay, now that we are, you know, in the 21st century, let's take some of these elements and engage them again, make use of them, but not pretend that we are trying to sort of magically make them happen again in just the same way in the 21st century but re-engage them in order to produce something that is both informed by 19th century principles but is absolutely of our own time something you know that 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 is absolutely new even though it draws on historical principles so eric perhaps you could tell the audience or and me what the current state of this particular strand is within the research project Yes, sure. So the Teach It project itself, um, we haven't really been doing the, the kind of um, imitation type work at all that I uh, have just described. But what we have been doing is something that um, has some, perhaps some elements of that approach. So on the basis of um, historical evidence that we've been accumulating about pre-performance and performance practices of 19th century uh, repertoire and um, having listened to some of the early recordings of that repertoire and having some sense at least about how some of those recordings 
present this music. What we have just been doing quite recently, actually, is working with um, an ensemble who themselves have been listening to those early 20th century recordings of uh, Beethoven and other 19th century repertoire, and um, developing their own approach to the performance of that repertory based on that historical evidence. Now, it's a, it's a string quartet, and what they have done is to listen to um, a couple of the prominent uh, string quartet recordings made in the early part of the 20th century, and on the basis of that, have been working on, first of all, on exactly the repertoire that they hear in those recordings, and secondly, um, as I was just saying earlier, branching out into new repertoire from the same period, um, using what they now understand about uh, that kind of approach in how they themselves approach it. So it, these are that uh, they don't regard this as a uh, as simply an imitation or, if you like, a reconstruction of what those quartets were doing, but as an attempt to listen very closely to what how those quartets approach the repertoire to kind of internalise some of those ways of playing the music in their own playing and then um, to use that in a more or less free way in their own approach to the music. And what we did was to spend um, a day with them working both on a section of a Beethoven string quartet and a section of a Mendelssohn string quartet to ask them you know, to, to experiment with what they have internalised from listening to those quartets to apply it um, in their own performance, to tell us something about what they um, experience, whether they think it's successful on any one particular take or not, and actually to play their own recordings back to them and say, look, this is what you just did, uh, what do you think? So this is a kind of iterative process, which one could imagine, I mean, this has been very much a, a first experiment, but um, this is the kind of iterative process that you could imagine working with um, another quartet or a larger ensemble. And in fact, we intend quite soon to be working with a rather larger ensemble, a string orchestra, in fact, an attempt to um, get a group of players to think about the historical evidence for a particular performance and pre-performance uh, practice, to use it in their own performance, to listen back to themselves, to make some judgments about whether they think this you know, has gone well, whether it sounds like the kind of thing that they were imagining doing, um, and so on. And so you can see that this, this has an element of a kind of procedural knowledge, as psychologists would talk about it, this, this kind of um, bodily or embodied knowledge that people have um, through actually enacting a practice rather than just reading about it or analysing scores. So it has an aspect of this kind of bodily knowledge in it, and yet it is um, quite a long way away from um, that particular practice of imitating a single recording and getting closer and closer to that sound itself. So what would you hope to discover from that process? I think we'd hope to discover perhaps a couple of different things. One is whether players themselves feel that this is a, you know, is this a comfortable change in their own practice? Having listened to 
Um, other performances which have these different features, when players in the 21st century try and adopt those practices themselves, does this feel um, comfortable? Does it feel liberating? Does it feel exciting? Does it feel bewildering? Does it feel unsettling? Any of those things. So I think it's a way of trying to understand whether these practices feel in, in, in people's own bodies as well as in their minds um, a long way away from their current practice and that in turn might then give us uh, some angle on whether the attempt to introduce some of those practices more widely in uh, general musical performance is likely to be met with resistance or enthusiasm to put it very black and white. Um, Secondly, I think it has, this isn't so much a finding as an application, I think potentially this has, um, you know, perhaps quite uh, significant and exciting possibilities for uh, ensembles who are wanting to find a, you know, a new and refreshing and perhaps um, audience attracting way of performing a repertoire that in some people's minds at least has become you know, overplayed and perhaps a bit tired through over-familiarity. And thirdly, um, it provides us with a very tangible circumstance in which musicians are working in a rather focused way on a particular repertoire and are trying to move towards some kind of either more dimly or more precisely viewed kind of aesthetic outcome and in which we can... Um, using various kinds of empirical methods, trace the process by which they either do, um, you know, progressively reach that kind of aesthetic goal, whether they know what that goal is in advance or not, or whether they reach some kind of stable place with this um, iterative process, or whether it remains much more fluid and perhaps less tied down than, than we might be imagining. Yeah, we, we have recently, I think, experienced a performance that I would consider to be a lot more fluid than, than, than some people would normally be comfortable with. Yes, that's right. Uh, you mean the one that we heard recently in the Festival Hall? Indeed, yes. Yes, so a performance by the Orchestra of the Age and Enlightenment with Andras Schiff um, as the soloist playing, well, actually on two successive nights, first of all, the, the Brahms' first piano concerto and then the Brahms' second piano concerto. And indeed... Uh, uh, and both of them without a conductor um, and, you know, with some quite audible um, flexibility, you might say, in the relationship between uh, the soloist and the orchestra. And we've been doing some audience questionnaire work with that. And even from a quick glance at some of the responses to that concert, it's clear that some people, you know, write a oh, superlative, wonderful, you know, tremendously refreshing sound and stuff like that. And one or two people I've noticed just goes, this was only last night, but going through those responses, one or two people um, clearly said, well, I said, you know, I would have preferred to have heard it in a slightly more tightly organised performance or something like that. Well, that is what you get if, if you do what she said before the performance. You make music without the police there. Indeed. Thank you very much.